Brothers and sisters, happy Sunday. I'd originally titled this sermon The Weather Report because I was, as I was writing it, it was raining very heavily over my little shack in the woods. And I was rejoicing because for, in, that means that we get two inches of rain, the folk wisdom has it, and then in two weeks the mushrooms will start to grow. And for us fall uh, mushroom hunters, we've been re really waiting for this season to uh, kick off. And then about five pages into writing this sermon, I couldn't make a connection between mushrooms and rain uh, and the gospel, and so I threw it out, and I'm going to preach about something different. Um, so I'm going to be talking about our kinfolk this week. It's a word that I use a lot. It's a word that I was raised uh, to use to describe people with whom we're in loving relationships with, and the fact is they may sometimes even be people that we're related to. So let us pray. Almighty God, creator of all humankind, enable us to hear your voice. Open our minds and give us some new and holy wisdom. Amen. My youngest child, Natalie, our third, is, she's over a year old now. She's about 15 months. Um, kids never ask me for anything. It's great. Other than, like, food um, and her bottle. And then she'll ask to be picked up. She does this cute little flailing thing where she just sits helplessly in front of pick her up. Sometimes I take stuff away from her that she shouldn't have, and then she asks for me to give it back to her. People say, well, what does your baby want for um, her birthday? And I'm like, what does she want? I mean, I know what she needs. Like, what does she want? She wants, like, the dog food. Um, she wants, uh, like, a paper clip to put in her mouth. I mean, she wants things, but they're not always sometimes things that are good for her. But otherwise, otherwise that, our relationship's pretty much on the level. It's, it's, we're solid. Um, but I know that as she grows older and the person who she is is slowly revealed to me and the rest of the world, that might change. I've heard tell that teenagers can be challenging. <laughs> I, uh, it's natural to want only that which is best for your child despite operating out of the full and sure knowledge that I definitely don't know everything. And I think that there are times in our history, especially in America, a land of movements and radical change and experimentation, uh, there are times where we become very bitterly divided uh, generationally and we become alienated from one another. And that's why the church is such a wonderful medicine for that alienation. I know too many young people who the only friendships they have with people who are older, significantly older with them or with their bosses or their employers or something. It's good to have friends who are part of the different generations. But I think back to the civil rights movement in the South in the 1950s. We've been hearing a lot about that lately as we reflect as those civil rights leaders, many of whom are in their 80s and 90s now, share their testimony, some of them for the last time. And I know that um, when Sheriff uh, Bull Connor uh, unleashed his attack dogs on the peaceful protesters in Birmingham, Alabama, when they carried Martin King off to jail, and when that movement, the civil rights movement, was beginning to collapse, indeed it appeared that it might collapse, that thousands of school children from Birmingham walked out of their classrooms, and they marched to the front lines of that fight, demanding an end to segregation. And those same police officers turned their fire hoses and their attack dogs on them, on children. And that those images were seen around the country and around the world. and It was one of the most powerful um, parts of that movement that really started to shake and awaken the consciousness of 
Northern progressives, to be sure, but even folks who lived in the South couldn't bear to see the newspaper photos of children being attacked by police dogs. But there was also, so, so that Children's March was a turning point in Birmingham, but people also demanded to know why or who would allow children to participate in these protests, in these nonviolent direct actions. Reverend King spoke about this on several occasions. Dr. King said that the children must develop their own sense of freedom because the fight was theirs more than anyone else. Today we see young people storming the, the, the greatest uh, 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 conferences in the world demanding action for climate and for the protection of the environment because they will live in this world many years after we have gone from its face. So the issue is most pressing for them. And the other reality that Dr. King knew is that they couldn't keep those kids off the front lines if they wanted to. They couldn't keep them away from the police dogs. And today we have to fight because we can't seem to keep our black and brown kids out of the industry of the penitentiary system, this modern form of slavery. Those kids in Birmingham kept walking to the front lines and getting blasted and ruined by fire hoses and police batons, and their parents were absolutely terrified. But who wouldn't be? And so Reverend Dr. King spoke also to the parents, the parents of children who were now sitting in Birmingham jails, some of them 11, 12, 13 years old. And he said to them, he tried to give them peace and said, don't worry, don't worry about your children, he said, because they're going to be all right. Don't hold them back if they want to go to jail, he said, for they're not only doing a job for themselves, but for all of America and for all of mankind. And this became known as the Children's Crusade of Birmingham. It finally brought down the fascism of Sheriff Bull Connor, the cruelty of Jim Crow in Alabama. But what parent in their right mind would allow their child to take up that terrible cross? Let it be someone else's kid. The way of Jesus Christ and the message that he's preaching today and the stress that he's under, this anxiety that he's feeling, is he's, he's encouraging his disciples to do something, to follow him, and it is going to get them thrown out of their churches and made into enemies of the Roman state if they do this thing. And back then, your church was, that was your whole social security, your whole safety net was tied up in your church and your biological family. And he's saying, look, you are going to face persecution and your parents are not going to appreciate you doing this thing. It's terrible, but it doesn't make them wrong. No, because if then the children thrown out of the church for the sake of their faith in Jesus Christ, then the church be wrong, and the state be wrong, and let the whole world be wrong. For if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you follow him before you follow the church or the state. And the parents and the loved ones of these disciples many of them young people, they were not pleased by these instructions, as we heard today. He says, I don't know what to tell you. Father will be turned against son. Would that it weren't so, but I have this baptism by which I will be baptized. And just as many parents today of brave kids would probably prefer that they remain safe instead of fighting the fight that it takes to overturn injustice, topple evil, 
Let someone else kid do it. So my dad told me, I was 19 years old. I was, I was marched off to Fort Benning, Georgia, try to help shut down the School of the Americas. So I got radicalized by a Jesuit priest named Father John Deere. I'd have followed him anywhere. He said, we've got to shut this School of the Americas down. We're just training mercenaries and sending them to South America. We carried crosses with the names of their victims right up onto that campus, planted them in the grass facing the base commander's office. The military police would simply arrest us, put us in a bus, and take us to jail. My dad was a military man himself. He said, just let somebody else do it. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just worried about you. And I said, don't worry about me. I'll be fine. I was fine. I got penned up in the, in the uh, Huskow with a bunch of nuns. They took really good care of me. They sprang me out of there right quick. <laughs> little, little old ladies, 80 years old. I got put in the pen with them, and then, of course, the bishop called and said, you let those nuns out of jail. And the jailer let them out. And then one of the little old ladies, she turned to the jailer. She said, well, what about him? And the jailer said, well, what about him? She said, well, he's our driver. We can't leave without him. <laughs> he said, you driving them? I said, I'll drive them anywhere they want. Yeah. <laughs> I went with them. I always have a soft spot in my heart for, for, for elderly Catholic women. They're just something different about them. But it is... A challenge. Um, you know, and the other piece is them saying, if you do this and you follow this man, you follow this prophet, you might get your entire family kicked out of our church. And that's when Jesus says, yes, and there may be foes, members of your own household, but whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Most of us have never had to face the terrible choices made by those first disciples or by those children who stood up and left their classrooms, Birmingham, and marched into the terrible jaws of the police. Most of us won't have to deal with that. Most of our children won't. But many of us, quite a few of us, in fact, will have to live with a different reality, one that our biological family has, in some form or another, rejected the person that we've become. And at no place in our society today do I see the truth of those gospel words more than the common treatment of gay, uh, lesbian, bisexual, transgender kids. Kids. And this is bared out by facts. 5% of the kids in Kent County, 5% of them are, are gay. 40% of the homeless kids in Kent County are gay. And square that math for me. The reality that we know is that it's the parents that are putting them out of the house for telling the truth about who they are. I wanted to buy this 40-foot billboard and put it over I-96, do one of those like instructions from God sort of things. It's going to say, like, if you kick your kids out for being gay, there's going to be hell to pay. Put like flames on it. Matthew 1810. They don't, there's, nobody lets me put up billboards. That's probably a good thing. But this is a kind of madness bordering on a generational curse that a parent can so hate their kid that they throw them out of the house and into the street. They say, I didn't want people from my church to find out that you were one of those. Madness. Jesus confirms again and again that the way of falsehood may earn you the best seat at the banquet, the love and support of thousands of people, and the adoration of kings and princes, and the truth will cut you like a sword. So he says, more or less, there are many times in life when we can choose right or we can be in relationship and Jesus says if you choose to follow me if you choose to do that which is right 
you may be asked to sacrifice some relationships, even blood kinship relationships. And that is very, very hard. But the truth is that sometimes in life we can be right or we can be in relationship. So are we left orphaned? Not in the least. Because the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, from cover to cover, promises something even greater. Even greater. Bible says, don't derive your authority and identity from who your parents are. Don't rest on the laurels of the class or creed or caste or culture you were born into. You did nothing to choose those things. Rejoice that you've been adopted into the household of God. Rejoice that your citizenship is in the kingdom of God. The Bible is absolutely filled with stories of adoption. Moses, adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, Queen Esther, adopted by her cousin Mordecai. In the New Testament, we learn that the spirit you've received brought about your adoption to kinship, and by him, and by him we cry, Abba, Father, God. Jesus Christ himself was adopted by his father, Joseph. Yes, Jesus had two dads. This is the first time you're hearing that. You haven't been paying much attention Christmas time. And at that moment of his death, his cruel death upon the cross. Jesus, his mother adopts the beloved disciple as her son, and he adopts her as his mother. So in the world of the Bible, we're not born into our families. We make them. We make them by choosing to hold fast to that which is true. Today, there's a modern word for this. People call it intentional family, which I think is a little bit, you know, of a sanitized kind of version of it. There's a lot of, there is a lot of cultural baggage out there about our supposed responsibilities to our biological kinfolk, and it's deep stuff. It is evolutionary stuff. Uh, and the Bible says, honor your mother and father. But have you ever considered, or ever thought that perhaps the best way to honor your parents would be to leave your school desk, walk out the doors, and confront the police in the Birmingham streets to build a world that would stop crushing them under its boot heel. Or that, the, or that the best way to honor an abusive parent is to deprive them of the opportunity to abuse you any further. Honor thy mother and father, surely, but this does not mean that you place your relationship with anyone above the truth that God has put into your heart. So church, if we're anything at all, if we are a center for the adoption of each other's hearts. So when I call you my brothers and sisters on Sunday, I'm not messing around. It's strong medicine. If your family has hurt you, remember that you may find for yourself a family that loves you. And if your family condemns you, even in the name of Jesus Christ, honor them by liberating yourself from their harmful behavior. When we tell our children, remember who you are and remember whose you are, we're saying that they belong to God. First, they're not our property. Our children aren't our property. Josephine, Teddy, little Natalie, they're not my property. No, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'd turn the world upside down to keep them away from those Birmingham police lines. I think I would best honor them, celebrate the truth that God's given them, 
by standing there right beside them. Stand up beside them as their father. Acknowledge the truth God has given to them might not be the same truth that I know and understand, but that they don't belong to me. They belong to God. And I will count it among the highest honors of my life when and if they choose to include me in their intentional family. I'll fight to maintain that honor and inclusion. So you're a child of God. You're more so a child of God than you are a child of any biological parent who claims ownership over you. And God will never, ever be against you. Ever. God will forever be standing right beside you as declare your truth to the world. There will be an intentional family, a family of adoption, a family of choice, a family of the blood of the covenant that is with you. Blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. How that saying goes. That's discipleship. Because we're never left alone. We can never be orphaned. We can never be separated from one another. And that we are deeply and unconditionally loved by the parent, the creator, the progenitor, the true heavenly parent of each and every one of us. So yes, brothers and sisters, Jesus does understand the depths of our alienation from people who are perhaps even members of our biological families. But the promise of the gospel is this, that though they may turn you away, and though there may be foes and woes in your own household, you have a family. You have a family that loves you. And you'd never, ever be turned out of that household. Praise God. Amen.